from Randy, but from everyone. But I'll never forget listening to Randy and the specificity with everything that he talked about and connecting it to the scriptures. And, and uh, I tell you what, it, it changed my life. Uh, never in a million years would I have imagined that Randy and I would become friends. And, uh, and somehow in the mystery of God's providence, that has happened. Uh, I love this brother, and uh, he, he has had such an influence on me. And believe it or not, he has had a huge influence on you. You just don't know it uh, because he has influenced how this church functions. And, um, and again, not, and he would be quick to say it's not just him. It's, uh, it's all the other uh, ACBC guys as well. But Randy has been uh, with the organization, which used to be called NANC, N-A-N-C, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors, and a few years ago, the name got changed to uh, ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. It is now an international ministry. For many years, uh, Randy was the executive director of uh, NANC and still plays a, a significant, significant role in ACBC. Uh, he was a pastor for 12 years. Uh, he's been married to his wife, Cindy, for 50 years. For a guy who only looks like he's about 55, you know, that's pretty good. Um, he's the founder of Team Focus Ministry, and if he wants to talk a little bit about that, it's great, but it's a ministry to local churches around the country. He is also a trustee of Cedarville College, and we can go on and on. But I asked Randy uh, last year if he would come and be a part of our uh, biblical counseling training, and of course COVID kicked in. And so uh, part of the deal was we wanted him while he was here uh, to come and, and teach in Sunday school and then preach in the worship service and all of that got put off for a year. Well, that year is over and it's time to have Randy. Uh, so I asked him, because we're trying to help everyone in our church body understand, especially you new people, uh, we want everyone to kind of get a good understanding of what biblical counseling is like. Because my fear is that, uh, especially new people who come and become a part of our church, we have all been psychologized to one degree or another, right? And so that tells me that probably what you think about when you think about counseling is not what we actually do in biblical counseling. And so I've asked Randy to come and, and kind of lay a really foundational message on us uh, to help us understand what it is and why it's biblical and, and why churches should do this. And, uh, and I hope it'll spark interest in you. And then in the worship service, he is going to be preaching there too. And uh, he's going to be preaching uh, about raising children, right? From Ephesians 6. And uh, so that's going to be wonderful as well. I'm taking too much of Randy's time, but I wanted to introduce you. Randy, would you come? Thank you. It's a great privilege uh, to be here. And I uh, think God will forgive him for all those exaggerations as he talked about me, and uh, hopefully he'll forgive me for enjoying them as much as I did. So uh, I really look forward to coming here, and uh, I was so excited about coming when I'd been scheduled to be here last year, and then as he said, COVID hit, and uh, one of the things that happened, uh, I've been in vocational ministry now, uh, you know, close to 50 years, and uh, for the first time, someplace that I was scheduled to speak, but the event got canceled, they sent me half my honorarium that I would have received if I had come and preached. And it was your church that did that. And in all my years in ministry, no other church has ever done that. So uh, when Dan Kirk calls and wants me to come to, to Calvary, I'm ready. Because <laughs> I know go or no go, it's probably going to work out all right. <laughs> So uh, it's, a, it's a great privilege uh, for me to, to be with you. Well, I hope you got the notes uh, that were printed on what makes biblical counseling unique. And as we get ready to dive in, I'd like to lead us in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, help uh, me to speak in a way that's clear and precise, that's generally beneficial to these dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and help them to understand uh, why uh, biblical counseling is such an important part of the Christian life and a part of a, of a solid uh, biblical church ministry. Give us good understanding, I pray, during this time together. In Christ's name, amen. All right, our subject is, what is it that makes biblical counseling unique? 
And uh, to get started, let me just address uh, a few issues and see if we can get these kind of out of the way. First of all, let's just talk about the fact that every one of you, every one of us is a counselor. And over the years, I've uh, been speaking at different conferences, and it's not at all unusual for me to meet somebody at a break time, and they'll come up, and usually it's a man, and he'll say, well, it's good to be here, I've enjoyed it, but I'm not a counselor, my wife's the counselor, I'm just her chauffeur for this conference. And uh, I always find myself wanting to say, no, glad you're a chauffeur, I'm glad you're here, but you are a counselor. The fact is that every one of us is a counselor, and let me just make that point because that ought to influence how you listen to this. How many of you are parents? Did you ever tell anybody how to think or act? <laughs> or uh, how many of you um, have a friend? A few of you? We'll pray for the rest of you there that didn't raise your hand. Uh, do you ever tell anybody or advise anybody how they ought to think or act? Or, well, here's one. How many of you are wives? Do you ever tell anybody how to think or act? Well, the point is, I mean, we're all, uh, we're all counselors. We're all giving advice. And, you know, let's acknowledge some of us, might, we might call ourselves capital C counselors because counseling is a major part of our employment or our ministry of choice. But the fact is all of us are small C counselors. All of us are giving advice just as we go through the course of life and we're seeking to influence people and in how they think, how they act, and even what their motives should be. Also, I just want to establish the fact that all of our counsel or advice grows out of our worldview. And the term worldview just basically means it's just how you look at what's happening in your world and the world around you and how you interpret that. And we all have a lens through which we look at the events of our lives and the lives of others and how we interpret it. That's why people can look at the same event like a lot of things happening in our world today, and have such divergent views and interpretation. Because they're looking through a different kind of lens than you are. And they interpret things differently. The fact is, we all have a worldview, and that worldview, that lens we look through life and interpret life, uh, influences the kind of advice we give. And then third, let's acknowledge that we all have some beliefs and some influence our lives in a minor way, but there's other beliefs that just absolutely shape the thinking and direction of our life, and they become life-changing counsel and affects the kind of advice we give. Let, let me illustrate the differences. For example, I believe that Abraham Lincoln was a president of the United States, and I happen to believe he's one of the greatest presidents we ever had. Well, um, that belief hasn't exactly changed my life or the direction of my life, and it doesn't really influence the kind of counsel I give to people as I go along. But there's other kind of things I've come to believe that have absolutely changed my life. For example, you know, 50, 51 years ago, while I was a student at Cedarville College, now Cedarville University in Ohio, out of the hundreds of Christian females that were on campus and the ones that I knew, I determined that there was a young, attractive young lady named Cindy Cartner who was a committed Christian and had a heart for vocational Christian ministry and had the character and quality that attracted me to her. And I became convinced that of all the women I knew, she'd be the best one for me to spend the rest of my life with. And after diligent effort and persuading her to agree with that analysis, uh, uh, I made a commitment to her, she made a commitment to me, and that belief, what I believe about her, has absolutely changed the direction of my life and everything since then. So in the same way, there's some beliefs that we would hold, we might say loosely, but they don't influence our lives, but there's other things that we would hold tightly. And what we're talking about in this, about what is it that makes biblical counseling unique, is those things that we should hold tightly. Now, I'm going to use uh, the term biblical counseling multiple times during this presentation. Pastor Dan's always already used it uh, multiple times. So let's define. What do we, when we talk about biblical counseling, what are we talking about? Well, when we talk about biblical counseling, it is a Christian trying to help someone struggling with the problems of life and living just using the Bible. It's a Christian trying to help somebody with the struggles that are going on in our lives and they're trying to help them using the Bible. Or here's another way of putting it. Biblical counseling is the private, compassionate, intensive ministry of the word. Let me take, take that phrase apart. First of all, when we talk about biblical counseling, it's usually something that's done privately. 
and I would say privately as opposed to publicly. What I'm doing now is what we would call the public ministry of the word. I'm preaching, teaching the Bible. Next service, I'm going to preach a message. It doesn't matter whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been walking with Christ for decades. Everybody's going to get the same thing next hour. Everybody's getting the same thing this hour. This is the general ministry of the word. And it's an important part of the Christian life and what God says ought to take place. We talk about biblical counseling. It's not the public ministry of the word. It's private. All right. And it's usually one-on-one, maybe one-on-two, maybe one, three or four if you're working with a family. But then also you notice it's compassionate. And I mention it's compassionate because of, of the thousands of people that I know that are involved in the biblical counseling movement, only a very few get paid for doing counseling. Almost all the people I know who are doing biblical counseling are people who do it by choice out of their love for God that motivates them to love people. And to be willing to set aside time in their schedule to meet with people on a regular basis, to hear about their struggles, to interact with them, to help minister the word of God to them in an ongoing way. They're doing it because they love them. It is a compassionate. We do it because we care. And then also, it's the intensive ministry of the word. Uh, what I'm doing now is called the general ministry of the word. What I'm going to do in the next hour is the general ministry of the word. But when I'm sitting at, at my dining room table counseling somebody, I'm not doing general ministry. At that, when they're sitting across from me, I'm thinking, okay, out of all the things I know in the Bible, which page has what they need to know and hear the most right now? It's intensive. It's ministering the Word of God precisely to where people need it the most right now. But it's all the ministry of the Word. That's what biblical counseling is. It's the private, compassionate, uh, intensive ministry of the word. Well, here's a third definition. When we talk about biblical counseling, it is a Christian who needs to grow and change humbly and lovingly trying to help someone else who needs to grow and change so that God gets the glory. God in his <laughs> infinite wisdom has chosen to use people who don't have their act all together, like me, like Pastor Dan, like you, to help other people who don't have their act all together so that he gets the glory. And it's just amazing how God can take those of us who are still needing to be growing and changing and becoming more and more like Christ, but in his great infinite wisdom and grace, he chooses to use us and allow us to have a ministry to others. I'm so humbled, you know, as I heard Pastor Dan talk about listening to me years ago, and I think about what a mess I was years ago. <laughs> but by God's grace, I was used to help a pastor. He's helped somebody else. And a few years from now, I'll look back to this Sunday morning and think what a mess I was when I was talking at Calvary in Fort Worth. But God in his grace chooses to use us to help other people. That's what biblical counseling is. People who need to grow and change, helping others who need to grow and change so that he gets the glory. And you can and you ought to be a part of that if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, <clears throat> let's move on. I want to talk with you. What are some of the foundational beliefs that shape our view of counseling and then shape our practice of counseling? In other words, what is it that we would believe that influences how we think about counseling, but also how we actually do it, those foundational beliefs? And there's six I want to mention in our brief time uh, together. First is a commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. A commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. That is, we believe that the Bible is inerrant. That is, it is without error. We believe that because of verses like this. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they expressed what God wanted them to express. Other scriptures that talk about it are, for example, 2 Timothy 3.16. The first part of that verse says, all scriptures inspired by God. The word inspired means God breathed out his word. That's why we refer to this book, which has got hundreds of thousands of words in it. That's why in Christian shorthand, we refer to this as the word. It was God's communication to us. And this book reflects the character of its author. He is perfect, so his word is perfect. 
This is significant in counseling because it answers the question, what is our authority? And a question for anybody who's seeking counseling to uh, consider is, why should I listen to that person? And a question for any of us to consider who want to do counseling is, why in the world should anybody listen to me? Why in the world should anybody listen to you? And I think the answer is, well, uh, not because of my age, not because of my looks, not because of my education, not because of my experiences. The reason you'd want to listen to me, when you get right down to the point, is I know a little bit more about the Word of God at some points than you do right now. And I'm willing to spend time with you to help you get answers from the Scripture. And our authority for doing this private ministry of interacting with people about the problems of life is not due to our degrees, our background, our experiences. It's due to the fact that I know something about this perfect book that maybe you don't right now, or I'm willing to talk about something that we both know and help push the understanding and the application to life. The Bible is our authority because it is totally reliable. It is without error. Another foundational belief that drives our view of counseling and our practice of counseling is a commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the term gospel means the good news. And uh, the good news, for example, is uh, spoken of here when these words from Christ in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, where Christ said, Come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, I frequently use that, uh, refer to that passage in my first formal counseling sessions with individuals because I always want to do something to point people toward Christ and toward a life of biblical obedience in the first session. And I just point to people and say, here's what Christ says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And after I've asked people about 45 minutes of questions related to their circumstances, in almost every case, I'm able to say to them, this kind of sounds like what we've been talking about the last 45 minutes. You're weary and you're heavy laden. And they're not, yeah, that's me. And I'm able to say, Jesus says, come. Come. And then he describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. And he says, in coming to him, that is coming to his ways, his teaching, humbling yourself before him, you will find rest for your souls. What a wonderful past. That's good news. That rest for our souls is available. This matter of the gospel of Jesus Christ is also talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, where uh, the apostle Paul said, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Notice that. I delivered to you of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, from the, uh, raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The death of Jesus Christ as a payment for our sins, his burial, and then his resurrection to approve that he satisfied God's holiness and now makes it possible for God the Father to show mercy to us righteously. That is good news, that we can be forgiven. A commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ is significant because it answers the question, what is our focus? We are fundamentally excuse me, we are focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ as biblical counselors. And we're focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ in two ways. First, we are focused on the, the gospel as we seek to evangelize the lost. And I have personally found that biblical counseling and a willingness to meet with people, many of whom will come from the community that are, uh, that are unsaved, it sets a platform for evangelism that is tremendous and very, very fruitful. So in biblical counseling, we seek to evangelize the lost, but we also teach Christians how to preach the gospel to themselves every day. You may have heard that phrase, preach the gospel. What that basically means is you think about biblical truths and you keep tiling yourself those truths. One that I like to talk about with many of my counselees is, for example, in Romans 8, uh, the scripture says that Jesus Christ today is praying for us. He's interceding for us. And I like to remind people, in the midst of whatever trial you're in, I'd say to you right now, whatever you're facing in life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, with whatever you're facing today, be comforted, be encouraged by this, Christ 
is praying for you today. And sometimes we just need to repeat that self to our, preach it to ourselves. To our souls take hope in that and encouragement. That's our focus. Biblical counseling is Christ-centered, intensive discipleship. That's our focus. We're talking and trying to talk about what is it that makes biblical counseling unique? I said, well, we have a commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture that answers the question, what is your authority? We have a commitment to the gospel that answers the question, what is our focus? Third, we have a commitment to making disciples of Jesus Christ. A commitment to making disciples of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 8, 28, 18 to 20, we have this well-known passage that's typically called the Great Commission passage. And uh, notice it, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now let me focus in on that word disciple. Uh, a disciple, the word means a learner or a follower. And the Great Commission is not to just evangelize people. The Great Commission is not to try to get notches on your evangelism gun. The Great Commission is to make a disciple. That is a long-term follower of Christ. And a person coming to faith in Christ is part of the process, but it's not the end goal. The, the goal, what we're after, is not professions of faith. What we're after are long-term followers of Christ, you see. And then the scripture goes on to say, okay, here's how you do that. You see them baptized. They make a public declaration of what's happened on the inner man. And then Christ says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Notice that first phrase in verse 20, teaching them to observe. Part of biblical disciple making is teaching people to observe, teaching people to obey. Notice it does not say teaching people to know. It says teaching to observe. People need to learn. They need to understand. But for all of you that teach classes in any capacity where you're ministering the word of God to people, I just want to encourage you, do not teach just to know. God didn't give us the Bible just to fill our heads with facts. He gave us the Bible to teach us how to handle life, how to apply his principles in the, the difficulties that we encounter living in a sin-cursed world surrounded by uh, sinful people in a, in a society that's degenerating he's given us his book as a guidebook on how to live in hard times how to handle things and again we teach to uh, have people obey we're not teaching to know we're teaching to observe this is important because it answers the question what is our god-given assignment and the God-given assignment for every aspect of a church's ministry, whether it's the worship team, the preaching, uh, the youth workers, nursery workers, whatever, we ought to be thinking what I ought to be doing ought to be in some way contributing to the lives that I touch becoming long-term followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same is true in biblical counseling. One of the things that, uh, that encourages me the most is when I finish somebody... Uh, finish counseling somebody, and we're just reviewing. I love it when people un, un, uh, unprovoked or unstimulated uh, will say something like this. Well, Randy, I'm so thankful for the time you spent with me. I came to see you because of my addiction or my longtime struggle with a, a pornography, and thank God I'm, that's in the rearview mirror now. But I have grown in so many other areas of my life. I am such a stronger Christian. I just didn't get helped in that area but my whole life is better. I'm a better husband, I'm a better parent, I'm a better employee, I'm serving more faithfully. That's what we want to hear. The goal is not just to help people clean up one area of their life. We're trying to help people become strong, stable followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on. A fourth characteristic of what makes biblical counseling unique is that we have a commitment to loving our neighbor a commitment to loving our neighbor. Let me remind you of these verses from Matthew 22. Verse 36 says, a guy comes to Christ and he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Christ said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, you'll notice that Christ says the first great commandment is that you love me. But then he says a love for me, a love for God, manifests itself in a love for people. All right? And uh, you can work backwards. People that are so self-centered that they don't have really any time or care for other people, that suggests you they don't have much of a love for God. Because when you're, the stronger your love for God grows, the more you're going to be concerned about other people. The less the focus will be on yourself, the more it's going to be focused on other people. Now, <clears throat> we're to be loving toward other people as an outgrowth of our love for God. Well, you might think about, how, how could I show love to my neighbor? How, how could I love my neighbor? Well, here's some ideas. You could uh, buy them lunch. Uh, you could uh, give them a book. You could watch their kids so they go out on a date maybe one weekend. Uh, you could visit them if they're, when they're in the hospital. You could mow their yard if they're out of town on vacation. Give them a hug. If they're facing financial difficulties, you can give them some money. If their basement gets flooded, you could help clean up the mess. All of those are ways, tangible ways of showing love to somebody. But you know what? A non-believer could do every one of those. That doesn't mean we don't do them, but it means we need to do that plus something else. Let me suggest that one very tangible way of showing love to somebody is by being willing to set apart some of the time in your demanding schedule to be willing to listen to a neighbor tell you about what's going on in their life, the difficulties they're facing, to listen empathetically, to ask good questions, and then after they've, you've listened, to lovingly and compassionately open your Bible and say, let me talk with you about something from the scriptures that I think could help you at a time like this. And uh, if it's a person that's a non-believer, you'll begin the process of helping them to know and understand who Jesus Christ is and why he came, what he taught, significance of his death, burial, and resurrection, what it means to be a follower, a Christ follower. If it's a Christian, you're going to encourage them from the word. That's something that a non-believer can't do. A non-believer can't talk to another person in a way that ministers the word of God to them, to, to another person, and that prompts that person to grow in godliness or to grow in following the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, real love is, take, is talking with somebody, learning about their difficulties and their heartache, and uh, helping them to grow to know more about Jesus. In John chapter 13, Jesus Christ is in the upper room with his disciples. This is his last formal teaching time. And he says to his disciples, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now he's talking with, among the disciples, and so I understand this to be teaching, that Christ says people will know you are my disciple by how you love other people who profess to be my disciple. In other words, that's why Christians, it's so important that we learn to solve problems and, and, and keep the problem solving as small as possible. That's why church splits always bring disrepute upon the name of Christ and make it harder for us in evangelizing the lost. Christ said, people know you love me by how you love each other and get along with each other. Well, I think a church, church's emphasis like yours on loving the community and making biblical counseling available to people is a very tangible way of demonstrating the love of Christ. I will also say to you that I have observed all across the United States right now, churches that organize and formalize their biblical counseling ministry typically have waiting lists. Now just think about this. In our culture, there are churches who have people waiting, people in their community waiting to come onto the church property to meet somebody, walk down a hallway, go to a classroom or an office where the person's got a big old Bible open on the desk and sit down and pour out their heart and listen to what the person tells them to do and then come back the next week and hear more. You think, why in the world is that happening? Well, let, let me, and some of you may be stunned. Is that really happening? Yeah, it's really happening. Let me give you two illustrations. And the, the one first one is personal. Uh, I was a, a young pastor when I was trained in biblical counseling, and uh, about six or s years or so after I was trained in biblical counseling, 
I was invited to join the staff of the Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries uh, at Faith Church in Lafayette, Indiana. This church has trained more biblical counselors than any other church in the world. And uh, in 1982, I was asked to join their staff. And uh, Dr. Bob Smith, the medical doctor who was administrator, called me and said, hey, Randy, our third uh, counselors had to drop off the team because he's sick. And uh, we've got a waiting list. Pastor Good and I keep thinking we're going to get it knocked down, but it seems like we get it knocked down from 13 or 14 to 10, and it goes back up to 13 or 14. And he said, we finally decided we've got to, we've got to add somebody else to the team to address this waiting list. And so he said, we'd like you to come work with us on Monday. I've never been a member of Faith Church in Lafayette. I've never lived in Lafayette, Indiana. But uh, for 24 years, three months, and 17 days, wherever I lived in the state of Indiana, I drove to Lafayette on Mondays. And was a part of the training, counseling training, uh, where we offered training for people that came on the 11 Monday program, and then the February conference that Pastor Dan referred to. So I was hired to come and help knock down the waiting list that when I got there, was, they had 13 people on the waiting list. After 24 years, when I had to step away because of my duties with NANC, um, there were 18 of us counseling on Monday, and there were 50 people on the waiting list. Think about that. Dan's telling me right now there's a four-month waiting list right here, which means I think more of you need to say, hey, sign me up. Teach me how. I'll meet with people. Some of you are saying, well, that's a long time ago, 1982. All right, let me tell you about another one. Calvary Bible Church in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> They've organized and formalized their counseling ministry. Think about this, folks. In your area, your neighbors, they're waiting to come onto the property, pour out their heart to you, and ask you to tell them what to do with the mess they're in. You may wonder, why would people do that? People that aren't even Christians, why would they come here and do that? Let me suggest two reasons. I think one reason is because many of the people, many of our neighbors, people out there, do not have anybody in their circle of relationships that they think is handling life any better than they are. They, they don't know anybody that they think they could turn to and get good advice. I think the second reason is they look at the people in their circle relationships and they think, I don't trust them with my deepest hurts, my deepest heartaches, my longings, my disappointments. And they are more inclined to trust you because you're part of a church ministry. That's why I'm telling you, Biblical counseling is one of the most fertile grounds for evangelism because people will come, pour out their heart to you, and because you're going to meet with them week after week, you have the privilege, the joy of talking to them, getting to know them. They get to know you. You build a relationship. You get to answer their questions. You get them, you're able to encourage them reading in the Gospel of John and memorizing key verses like John 3, 16 to 18 and giving them evangelistic tracts. And you build a relationship where the, the relationship can support the weight of your evangelistic efforts. It's not just a one and done, but you're able to minister to them in a significant way and evangelize them. This explains why many churches have effective counseling ministries. This is significant because it answers the question for what should we be known? And I would hope that uh, your church and churches that you may know about or maybe visitors here that be going to other churches when you leave I would hope that you'd want to be known in, in your community. This is the church that cares about people and will help them when you're facing difficulty. This is the church that has people that's willing to listen to you and to keep your concerns private, but help you to get real, lasting answers. Well, <clears throat> let's move on. A fifth uh, commitment that marks um, our views of biblical counseling is a commitment to the sufficiency of Christ in the scriptures. I want to say that this is where the battle for the Bible is today. I mean, there's always been a battle for the Bible. And years ago, decades ago, there was a battle over the inspiration of scripture, and I think that's been largely fought and won, at least in the circles that I'm familiar with. 
years ago there was a battle over inerrancy. That's, I think, largely been fought and won. Or the real battle for the Bible today is over the sufficiency of the Scripture. And the, the question about the sufficiency of the Scripture, particularly to counseling, basically boils down to, is the Bible really sufficient to help people today? Or the way I like to put it is, is this. And you've got to decide this. Is my Bible thick enough? I mean, yeah, I need to help use the Bible to help people, but do I need the Bible plus something else? So let me, let me kind of approach it this way. When we talk about the sufficiency of the Scripture, it would grow out of, our belief in the sufficiency would grow out of verses like this one. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, Notice that phrase there. He's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's what the Bible claims to be about. The Bible says it's adequate, it's sufficient for life and godliness. It's not sufficient for other stuff, and it doesn't claim to be. So, for example, if uh, when the service is over this morning and you go out to your car and you've got a flat tire, hope you don't, I mean, don't go grab your Bible to figure out how do I even find the spare tire in this new car I bought. Or how do I fix a flat tire? I mean, the Bible is not going to tell you. And it doesn't profess to be a training manual on auto repair. But the Bible will tell you how to think and how to behave, what your motives ought to be as you respond to that trial. The Bible is about life and living. The, the stuff, it's adequate, sufficient for that. Here's another passage or a statement I want you to think about this. Uh, this was written by David Pallison, a longtime member of the ACBC Board of Directors. He said, Biblical or Neuthetic Counseling was founded in the confidence that God has spoken comprehensively about and to human beings. The Bible, His Word, teaches the truth. Biblical truth and methods are to be pursued and promoted in biblical counseling. An integrationist attempts to wed secular psychology to conservative Christianity. He believes that the scriptures are not comprehensively sufficient, that the Bible is in some essential way deficient for understanding and changing people. He believes that the church, therefore, needs systematic input from social sciences. Integrationists aim to import the intellectual contents and the psychotherapeutic practices of psychology into their counseling in a way that they think is consistent with biblical faith. It's what we would be calling a Christian integrationist approach to counseling. These would be people who profess faith in Christ. Many of them would be faithful members of Bible-believing churches around the world, but they've been trained in the world's theories, the world's practices, and they have found merit in those, and yet they are, have an a, a evangelical view of the scriptures and their goal is to take what they've learned from secular psychology and somehow they want to blend it with the Bible, and then that's their approach to counseling. They would not believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. They would say, yes, we need to use the Bible to help people, but we need the Bible plus some Freud or some Adler or some Maslow or some Oprah or some Dr. Phil or just add something. And... To go back to my earlier illustration, basically they're saying, the Bible's important, but my Bible's not thick enough. We need the Bible plus something else. We would reject that, and I would encourage you uh, to reject that. Here's a, here's a passage I'd want you to meditate on, maybe a little bit differently than you would typically. We typically use 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 when we are wanting to train new Christians and teach them that the Bible is the breathed out word of God. And that's an accurate way to do it. What I want to do is draw your attention. Notice what the Bible says about itself. The Bible says about itself, it, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Now notice this, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, notice what the Bible says about itself. It's profitable in four key areas. First of all, it's profitable for teaching. 
That means that you can come to the Bible and it'll get you headed in the right direction on how you ought to think about any of the issues related to life and living. So folks, I mean, just, just pick an issue. Anger, fear, worry, depression, discouragement, depression, uh, sex before marriage, sex in marriage, um, role of husband, role of the wife, communication, finances, how to earn money, how to save money, how to invest money, um, guilt, repentance, forgiveness. Just pick, some, just pick an issue related to life and living, and you can turn to your Bible and you can start looking, and you will find answers on how you ought to think. It'll get you pointed in the right direction on how you ought to think, how you ought to act, and what your motives ought to be on those key areas. But that's not all the Bible does. Notice the Bible is also good for reproof. And the word translated reproof means more than the Bible will tell you you're wrong. I mean, the Bible does that. I mean, it'll tell us the way we think or act, our motives are wrong. But the word reproof, translated reproof, really means the Bible will bring you to the point of conviction where you will admit you're wrong. That's a huge issue, not just in counseling. That's a huge issue in parenting. Amen? Yeah. It's a huge issue in husband-wife relationships. It's a huge issue in other kinds of impersonal relationships. And the Bible is good not just to tell us how we ought to think and act, but to make us realize and admit, yeah, I'm off the path here. But more than that, the Bible's good for reproof. I love this one. The word translated reproof basically has the root meaning of making to stand up again that which has been knocked down. And what brings people in for counseling is that they're knocked down in life. Off time, they're knocked down in their marriage relationships, they're knocked down in parent-child relationships, they're knocked down in their morals, they're knocked down in their emotions, their, their way they're treating other people. I mean, they're just knocked down. They're what we, oftentimes people say, I'm just a mess. They're saying, I'm knocked down. And God's word is sufficient. God's word gives us principles and procedures to take people who've been knocked down by sinful thinking, sinful behavior, sinful motives, and to help them stand up again. And every time I talk about that, I wish we could take time for a few testimonies. We can't, but I wish we could, because I'll bet all across this room are people who say, that was me. I was a mess. I mean, I was flat on my face, as it were, in life. And someone invited me to church or took me to a counselor. Someone opened the Bible. Someone encouraged me to start reading in the Gospel of John. Somebody did something, and I later came to faith in Christ. I started growing as a Christian. Here I am, and now I'm in a faithful church, and I'm thinking about becoming a biblical counselor. That's what the Bible is good for, to take people who've been knocked down to help them stand up again. But that's not all. The Bible is also good for training in righteousness. That means that the Bible will teach us how to discipline our thinking, discipline our behavior, so that we can live the future of our lives differently than we have the past of our lives. I love saying to my counselees, sometimes in the first session, maybe the second, I love saying to them, if you will come back and give me the privilege of working with you, and if you will humble yourself, you'll bow the knee before Jesus Christ in his word, and you will seek to hear and obey his word, I can assure you the future of your life can be a lot different than the past of your life you've been telling me about. And when I say that to people, I'm not saying it because I think I'm an all-fired-hot counselor. I'm saying that because I think the Bible is good for training in righteousness. It can teach people how to discipline their thinking, discipline their behavior, so the future of their life can be vastly different than the past of their lives. Now think about that. If your Bible is good, the way, I love the way one person put it, the Bible is good to tell us what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. And if your Bible will do that, Christian, listen to me. If your Bible will do that, why would you seek for other ideas from Freud or Adler or, or any of the other theories? Our Bibles are thick enough. We don't need the Bible plus. We just need to know the Bible more. And we need to use it more. We need to take the sword of the Spirit out of the sheath and use it in our own lives then seek to minister it to others. Well, we're talking about the sufficiency of the scriptures. And as I started this point, I said to you, if you're going to get interested in biblical counseling, you've got to deal with this personally. But your church has to deal with it. And thankfully, this church has. Other churches are learning to deal with it. But this is also a matter that influences denominations. All right? And it becomes and is a hot issue in many denominations. Here's a, something I want you to, to read 
And this is in your notes, but here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to not look at your notes right now, and I want you to just look at the screen. And let me read this to you. Later you can go back and you can read it for yourself in the notes. Here's, uh, here's what it says. Whereas Southern Baptists are committed to the authority, sufficiency, and the relevance of the Bible, and whereas uh, the Bible teaches that human beings are created in the image of God, made by Him, like Him, and for Him, and that because of sinful rebellion against the Creator, our entire being suffers from sin's corruption. And whereas all aspects of our lives, including our spiritual, moral, and psychological conditions, are to be informed and governed by the application of and obedience to the Holy Scriptures, and whereas in this therapeutic culture, physicians and counselors often ignore human sin and its effects, they neglect our most fundamental human and spiritual needs, and therefore misunderstand our condition, mistreat our problems, and sometimes unintentionally do more harm than good. And whereas an uncritical acceptance of the therapeutic culture too often has infected our pulpits, our ministries, and our counseling, and whereas our churches often have neglected our God-ordained responsibility for the care and cure of souls, becoming practically ineffective, both marginalizing ourselves from the culture and being marginalized by the mental health establishment. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Messengers of Southern Baptist Convention, meeting in St. Louis 2002, affirm Christian counseling that relies upon the Word of God rather than theories that are rooted in a defective understanding of human nature. And be it further resolved that we affirm that any method worthy of the name Christian counseling must address the root of our problems and reveal the crux of God's solution, the redemptive word of Christ and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, by which the depths of sin and the fullness of grace are made known. And be it further resolved that while we affirm that there are real conditions that warrant legitimate medical treatment, we reject the assumptions of the therapeutic culture that offers a pharmacological solution for every human problem. And be it finally resolved that we call on Southern Baptists and our churches to reclaim practical biblical wisdom, Christ-centered counseling, and the restorative ministry of the care and cure of souls. And that'll be a great opportunity for somebody to shout, Amen! This answers the question in counseling. Who and what is going to be our guide? Our commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture answers the question, who and what is going to be our guide? Well, let me touch on this, this next part quickly as we close. We also have a commitment to the kind of change spoken of in the Scripture. The Bible talks about the kind of change where there's an inward change that produces outward change. This is talked about in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, where the scripture says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, these things that are listed are what our culture frequently refers to as addictive behaviors. And our culture believes that if, for example, if you're homosexual, or if you're involved in drunkenness, what our culture calls alcoholism, they basically believe that you can't change. The very best you can do is learn to uh, control it, or just you have to just say, that's just the way I am, and live it out. The scripture does not have that view. The next verse says, and such were some of you. You used to be people who were marked by these habitual sins, but now you've been washed, uh, you've been sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The Bible talks about the kind of change that starts on the inner man and grows to manifest outward change. This is also talked about in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, which speaks about putting off the old man, putting on uh, the new. Uh, the, the significance of, of this, it answers the question, what is our goal? And our goal is to help people to change from the inner man. Do you realize that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his word and the 
convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the very best that any other model of counseling can do with people is rearrange their flesh. They cannot change the heart from a heart of stone to a heart of softness and righteousness toward God. Well, let me uh, race here toward the finish line. The clock's moved a little bit quicker than I have this morning. Uh, we've talked about a commitment to the inerrancy of the Scripture. What is it that makes biblical counseling unique? It's a commitment to the inerrancy of Scripture. It answers the question, what is your authority? We've talked about what is it that makes biblical counseling unique? It's a commitment to the gospel that answers the question, what is your focus? A commitment to making disciples answers the question, what is your God-given assignment? A commitment to loving our neighbor answers the question, for what do we want to be known as a church? Our commitment to the sufficiency of Christ answers the question, uh, what is our guide? And our commitment to the kind of change talked about in the Bible answers the goal, um, answers, the kind of change answers the, the question, what is your goal? So in conclusion, let me say these two things. These six commandments, these six commitments, when lived out, will lead to a godly Christian being a fruitful people helper, regardless of age, regardless of education, or formal training in biblical counseling. You can be a fruitful people helper without ever having taken a formal class in biblical counseling. A class in biblical counseling will probably help you to be more fruitful, get more done in less time, help more people. But you can and should be fruitful. If you, have the, you will be fruitful if you have these six commitments and live them out. The last thing I want to just say is one of the, the neat things that makes biblical counseling unique is that we are the only model of counseling that sings our view of counseling. Uh, you're familiar, some of you, with uh, the worship chorus, All I Have is Christ. Listen to this. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that uh, you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. That's what makes biblical counseling unique. We sing our view. And as we go to the worship service, watch that. We're going to sing our view of biblical counseling. God bless you.